I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we are joined by Emmy, a master's student and researcher focusing on psychosocial support and interventions for people living with chronic illness and infectious disease. Let's talk about it. It's going to be great. We're hanging out with our new friend, Emmy, uh, all the way from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, by the way, I love Nashville. Like, what a, what a f- awesome, awesome. I feel like every, I don't think any, I, I have, I've never heard a bad word spoken about It's Nashville. awesome. It's so fun. Um, uh, Isn't it like the Bachelor and Bachelorette party oh, yeah. city of the world? It is. Uh, it's a hot, it's a hot, <laughs> I feel like it, yeah, hot I feel like it probably bachelors could be. and bachelorette parties yeah. for sure. Do you get tired of that shit? Like... <laughs> Very exhausted of it. And there's like, there was this whole thing about it a couple months ago. They, so one of the main like bachelorette attractions is these like pedal taverns that yes. drive on main roads. <laughs> yeah. And they like recently tried to stop that by like not allowing moving vehicles to like serve alcohol. But I guess some sort of regulation, like they weren't able to stop the vehicles from being on the road um, for whatever reason it was. And so now people just like viciously pregame it. So they're like throwing off off the sides of the trucks. Yeah. So it's even worse. Oh, wow. That's so great. That's why I love Nashville so much. Oh, yeah, it's great. You know, what, you know what it reminds me of? It sounds like the way that people who live in Austin feel about South by Southwest. Yeah. Except imagine that South by Southwest all happened year all year Every round. weekend. Yeah. yeah, right. Well, I think yeah. Austin is kind of of gradually becoming more like that all year round. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but we're not here to talk about our favorite American party cities. Um, we're actually here to talk to Emmy about her her work and her line of research. Uh, Emmy, you are a master's student. You are a researcher. Your focus is right up our alley, um, focusing on psychosocial support and interventions for people living with chronic illness and infectious disease. Um, Give us a little bit of an insight. You know, what, what are you taking your master's in? What is what is your life? You know, this is uh, your you've 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 taken a you've taken a break out of your day in the middle of uh, exams just to shoot the shit with us. So, what you know, what kind of exams are we looking at? Yeah, so um, I am a master's student under the Medicine, Health, and Society department, and so it's like this huge interdisciplinary program we have here. Um, so some people are doing it because they're interested in health policy and like health economics. I'm a little bit more on the epidemiology side, but I find everything else really interesting. Some people are like going into film. So it's a Ooh. it's a really cool program um, that kind of spans multiple uh, disciplines in that way. Um, so this week, the only exam I have left is bio. Um, so that's definitely a biggie, but I'll get through it. Um, and I just finished like social psych. So um, yeah, I kind of sit in that space of like the math side of health research because um, I'm really into like looking at these big you know, data sets and then kind of finding information through that. Um, so like for me, I primarily take like statistics, but I also take, I'm taking gender, sex and medicine next semester. So, um, it's like a cool, you know, uh, overview of the health field. What, uh, what school is this? Vanderbilt university. Cool. Very cool. Well, I'm I'm curious about the, the film piece. Why, why would somebody go into this program then, and then go into film? Yeah. So my friend who's going into film is um, she actually is doing the undergrad medicine, health and society. Um, And so she's like a double major uh, with with the film studies department. And I think she's really interested in like going out into the world and then creating like health based documentary projects. Um, I know she did like a short film while on campus. um, So all sorts of things that you can, you know, kind of. That's really cool. I love that. Yeah. And, you know, like it's it's like those those types of things are so it, when you hear those two things, you go, well, that's a, 
that's weird. Like, how do those two things mix? It's, it's kind of like podcasting in hell. Well, hey, you know, it's like you look <laughs> at what, you what we do with this and it's exactly that. Like th- those things are so important because um, as people who have the lived experience as patients, you know, there's there is uh, I, I was just at a conference in in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago um, that was put on by the the children's um, uh, children's Healthcare Canada. And uh, they had a whole like they had a whole um, breakout session dedicated specifically to the power of digital storytelling for patients. And, you know, when, when I was there, I was like, oh, interesting. That's like essentially what we've been doing with with Sick Boy. Um, but they, this was a group of people that literally go into health sectors, go into, you know, hospital um, like, you know, provincial hospital services and they 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 run trainings for the, for people within these services to facilitate um, a digital storytelling sort of like a project with patients. Right. So, you know, the example could be like a, uh, they go into a pediatrics hospital and they train someone there. And then that person finds one of the patients in the hospital and goes, Hey, you have a really fascinating story. Um, I want you to tell this story and 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 we'll we'll work together in like framing this with you and we'll film it and we'll put together this little you know mini documentary that's like a 5 minute piece that will be of your story and your experience of this thing that you went through and they'll they'll you know they'll do this whole like broken down process of making this little this little piece of digital storytelling with this patient and then the guy who started this whole thing his he has like he has uh, he's done a bunch of research and have, has published papers on this exact work, and basically they're trying to track like the the sort of tangible takeaways from this type of project, which lead to um, like patient empowerment, right? And you know we've talked about this on the show a number of times, but like empowered patients, patients who feel empowered, it just leads to better health outcomes. And so when you look at like film and and its place in health and research, it might not really click right away. But if you really start to like look into the findings and the, the research that people actually do with this type of thing, it's so valuable. Well, I'm just going to say, Jared, it might not click right away until you just said what you said. And now, <laughs> now, now it, it clicks. clicks. Yeah. Well, well so, so to that <laughs> point, like, Emmy, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what is, you know, speaking of research, um, what are the areas of research that like are really kind of uh, interesting you right now and and you know what what sides of things are you like wanting to kind of sink your sink your hands into to get involved with as you go through your career yeah so um I mean like we've kind of covered I'm a little bit early in my career I'm only 22 so which is actually crazy to say I just turned 22 so I feel like a knife through my heart you know um that's like the first birthday of just getting old um, but, so, <laughs> speaking, oh no, you're yeah, speaking it's to three guys tough. in their thirties. So. Well, um, Hey, listen, I got, I got an email from AARP yesterday and it actually like ruined my entire week. So I've been sitting on that. Um, but anyway, so, um, my first, like, I guess, formal research experience, um, I did a year long NIH undergrad training program in HIV prevention science and trans health. Um, and so that was super like interesting for me to understand like the mechanisms of epidemiology and like mm. global health research. Um, but what was funny was um, I, I went in like super interested. I wanted to know about HIV. And then when I'm looking at this data set, I was just like drawn to like all of the social aspects and questions that they were asking. Um, so my my paper ultimately ended up focusing on uh, family support and um, safety for women living with HIV. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really cool, really interesting stuff. And I had a lot of friends in the program as well, who, you know, kind of opened my eyes to different things. Um, but that's when I really started to hone in on this, like social epidemiology, which I know is like this convoluted phrase that I think doesn't quite make sense in people's heads immediately. Um, but it's basically analyzing social networks, social life, quality of life and how that impacts health and vice versa. Mm. Um, so I'm currently planning and writing a thesis on um, tuberculosis and medication adherence and kind of how stigma plays a role in that. Um, hmm. And then 
in this weird, I know we've kind of mentioned it already, but in this weird way, I, I found myself um, studying pediatric to adult healthcare transitions. I just had this like brainchild one day, I brought it to one of my mentors and, and we kind of went full throttle on that. So I'm in the middle of recruiting for that study. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty broad, but it kind of boils down to like social life, everybody's, you know, the way they think about illness and the stigma associated with illness and then how that impacts their outcomes. Mm -hmm. Where did the, uh, where did the piece on, on TB come from? Um, and what are, what are some of the, is, does that pertain to TB in the United States, in North America, globally? Um, Cause I, maybe I'm wrong. I feel, I, I feel like I have the sense that rates of TB are quite low in North America, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that. Oh yeah. So I'm so glad you asked. Um, so <laughs> TB is essentially considered eradicated in North America. I'm using um, air quotes, but so every once in a while we'll get like a case pop up here and there. Um, some people have like latent TB, so mm -hmm. they technically have the infection, but they're not symptomatic. Um, so usually we just hit them with like three months of antibiotics and then move about our day. Um, but globally it acts very different. Mm -hmm. TB for a very long time was the leading cause of infectious disease worldwide or of death from infectious disease worldwide. Um, it only bumped down to second post COVID, but they're anticipating that it'll jump back up. 1.6 million people will die this year, despite it being completely curable. So for those reasons, like, I think that's why I was drawn to TB. It's kind of considered like a wholly social illness, um, in that treatment patterns, treatment adherence, um, outcomes are all like socially determined, but in the same way, like health determines social outcomes. So it's like mm. this really interesting interplay mm. that kind of covers everything that I'm, you know, studying. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, yeah. I'm looking particularly in South Africa, but there mm -hmm. is like a, an insane amount of TB globally. Um, what, what are some, what, what are some of those social factors that do influence, um, the, the, I mean, or, or I guess do end up with the fact that, uh, TB kills still 1.6 million people globally. Yeah, this this idea of like like stigma attached to adherence. There, there. I I've never thought about that. I've never heard about that. It's very fascinating to like hear you kind of like just. I mean, kind of I mean, like just you, brush over you've it. You've had that. I mean, you've had that. <laughs> yeah, I guess, but I've never thought about it that way, right? Like it's it it is it it it, it is that, but I've never thought about it from a from a perspective of like oh the it, literally the stigma has affected my ability to adhere to my treatment. Right. Um, that's, that's, so, a, that's a really wild thought. I know. Um, and it's crazy that, you know, it is, I mean, it's, there's a great amount of researchers dedicated to this, but compared to like other similar research topics, it is relatively under-researched. Um, mm. So in, to answer the first question, in public health, we kind of have these spheres that we call the social determinants of health. Yeah. Um, and so that's basically anything non-biological that determines um, health. So things like socioeconomic status, um, in some places, race and, race and ethnicity. Um, and so stigma is is really rarely thought of as a determinant in its own right. I would mm. say within the past few decades, there's been like this shift to think about mental health largely as a determinant. Um, and then usually they kind of lump stigma in there. Um, but, you know, we're we're trying to show that that's, you know, maybe a little too simplistic. Mm -hmm. um, so when we think about stigma and adherence and outcomes, like, you know, generally, um, I'll use the TB example just because we're on it. But um, people with tuberculosis, they they are usually already starting at a point of significant economic discrimination. Um, that's how they ended up getting infected. So people who live in really urban highly populated areas, uh, people who have to work in like really crowded um, conditions. And so, you know, what's what's interesting to me is that in the like vast majority of cases, we offer free treatment um, because global health, health officials know that this is a huge problem. And we have to stop it. So we give people free treatment. Right. And then they don't finish it or they don't do it at all. And so the way we kind of see stigma operate there is the way that they kind of uh, enforce that people are taking treatment is through TB clinics. 
So they'll give you an appointment time. You come into the TB clinic, you take your medication and someone observes it to be sure that you're, you know, doing it every day. Um, but nobody wants to go to those things because everyone in the town knows where it is. They see you walking in, they know you have tuberculosis, and then that comes with all sorts of, you know, social outcomes. So in a lot of places, TB is associated with like alleged immoral behavior. Sometimes it's kind of linked to HIV infection. So people assume that people have HIV and that's what's causing their TB. Um, a lot of times there's like, uh, one thing I think about specifically is women. Um, specifically, there was a study in India of women who outright said, I'm not getting treated for TB. I don't want my husband's family to find out because mm. I will be disowned. I won't mm -hmm, mm -hmm. be a part of the family unit anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of how we see that, you know, there. Um, but I, I have this sneaking suspicion that it's not um, just isolated to infectious disease. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm curious, just, just to that point, like it, my initial thought was like, oh, is, is this because there's a lack of education around this? Um, but that last point that you made about the stigma and using the example of like a woman in India who feels like her husband's family will disown her. It doesn't sound like it's necessarily about uh, necessarily about a lack of education of like the impact that TB could have on you, but it's more so the stigma that comes with that. Is that true? Totally. So um, actually, interesting you brought that up. There's a couple of studies um, that that have specifically shown that even when people have a very high degree of knowledge about TB, you know, how it happens, why it happens, mm -hmm. uh, treatment, the fact that treatment is actually curative in most cases. So they score really well on these tests about TB knowledge. They still also end up having these preconceived notions about the types of people who become sick and and what that means. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean like, and it's, just to tie it to like my experience that you had said, and again, I never thought about it this way, but this is exactly what the, this this was. Where you know, an example being like early days of of um, of meeting Bridie, and and you know, like early days of dating, um, staying over at somebody's house, I would just not do my treatment for CF because it was like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want them to see me in a different light. I don't want them to see me as the sick person. So I'm just not going to do my, I'm not going to like take my medication. Even though, you know, even though I fucking am fully aware of CF <laughs> and how I, how, you know, who has CF and why I have CF and the mechanisms of CF and, and you know, like the way that that probably like, almost certainly had an impact on the way that you chose to go into a field of like, arts and performance where you're not going to have nearly the amount of like oversight from somebody like a boss who right, might right. have yeah, like yeah. some type of prejudice or yeah. or preconceived notion or impose like the feeling of stigma on you because yeah. you know you've got cf and if i have cf then i might not be able to perform this job that this person's overseeing and yeah. blah, blah 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 and the, so on and so forth the question that that makes me ask those is to talk about you were talking about the like sort of big buckets of social determinants of health and you mentioned that stigma is sort of like an aspect in some ways of all of those things, but it sounded almost like you were thinking of stigma should really be its, its, its own, own bucket. Yeah. Is, yeah. is that true? Absolutely. Um, so uh, this is just kind of, there's all sorts of, you know, studies also backing this up. Um, like I said, they're kind of few and far between, but from my own work um, in my trans health work, we, we were able to, we studied stigma specifically and we controlled for certain factors in our analysis. So we controlled for things we typically think of as like healthcare and life stressors. So income, um, we, we talked about like racial, you know, disparities in health. And we kind of took all of those things. We said, yes, these are very important. If we cut them out, is stigma still a determining factor in, um, overall quality of life and relationship quality? And the answer was yes. So how did, how did you go about doing that or designing that study to show that? Yeah. So um, I personally, it was a secondary analysis. So they had already collected all of this data and they basically pulled us in as undergrads. And um, it was kind of crazy. It was a great experience, but um, they gave us this giant code book with like hundreds of questions and uh, they were like, do what you want with it. Have fun. So um, <laughs> there was a section of questions that were about different types of stigma. So like, have you experienced stigma from a healthcare provider? Have you experienced it from friends and family? Um, do you fear going out in public with your partner? Do you know, mm -hmm. just questions like that. Um, and so I kind of honed in on the ones related to partnerships. So um, mm. trans women and their primarily cis male partners 
um, and and how they felt about presenting in public with a partner. Mm. Um, and we we found that people who you know um, felt you know really uh, uncomfortable around interesting interestingly around friends and family like it was kind of less so you know just generally out in public but people who felt uncomfortable like bringing their partner home and kind of incorporating them into their family um demonstrated that they had a, a had a really difficult time maintaining positive relationships so their oh, overall good. relationship quality was affected the intimacy and closeness in their relationship was affected so favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I so okay. The, I just I do want to say I firstly want to say um, I I I love the fact that you just turned twenty two. I know I can't and, believe it. <laughs> and 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 I you know one of my favorite parts about this about doing this project um, is that when we started doing the the routine checkup episodes like this one. You know, we were speaking to people that have been in their field and doing the thing that they do for like, the, the, you know, their, their entire career. Um, and every so often we get this opportunity to speak to someone who is just on the cusp of trying to even understand what it is that they want to do with their life. But they know that they want to kind of feed themselves into this, this uh, sphere of, of focusing on health in some way. And it always just it all I, I these types of conversations really like fill my cup up. It's so nice to see someone so young and so bright have such a dedicated focus on things that are so fucking important. And it's also really cool to get the ta- like the fresh take, you know, from it feels someone hopeful. who's yeah, exactly from someone who's in it right now. So I want to just commend you for that and thank you because Thanks. this is really neat. I really do love having these conversations. Secondly, um, I. I would love to kind of talk to you about, you know, we're talking about psychosocial elements of, and, 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 you know, de, um, the, the social determinants of health. And, and I had mentioned earlier, and we, we kind of talked about this before we were rolling, but um, I just attended this conference in Vancouver and, and it was put on by Children's Healthcare Canada. And there was, it was kind of broken into two. Um, but the, the first portion of the conference was specifically dedicated to transitioning from pediatric care to adult care. And, um, they had asked me to come in and give a, a keynote uh, at this at the, the to deliver the opening keynote for this conference, and I remember when they asked me to come in, I was like, "Oh God, isn't that a funny thing? They're doing an entire conference on transitioning from peds to to adult clinics like that. What a what a neat idea, but also like wild that they're they're dedicating an entire conference to this." And then as I started to like prep the work and write the talk for this this conference, it started to dawn on me, like the importance of that research and that work. And for people who aren't familiar, who aren't aware, um, this is a very, this is a, uh, a necessary and common experience for anybody who is uh, living with chronic illness, who uh, has spent their life attending clinics. So for myself, right, born with CF, Every three months, I go to the CF clinic since I was a baby. And uh, in, you know, when I was from the age of whatever, a three-year-old to, to 18 years old here in Nova Scotia, I went to the IWK, which is the children's hospital. And so over the, you know, that's, that's, the, that's like almost my entire life. I'm going to this hospital and I get to know this team of people. And there's not a lot of turnover in that team of people. Maybe someone will leave, but somebody else comes in and it, you know, people are usually there all the time. And, and so it's my, you know, it's my social worker. It's my respirologist. It's my dietitian. It's my, it's all the people that work to keep me alive. And you develop this really deep relationship with these people. These people are, are, are like, they're a part of the community that have raised you. This is at least how it felt for me. Now you turn 18, right? 
And when you turn 18, you're now considered an adult here in Canada. And so you no longer will attend the pediatric hospital at the IWK. You're actually going to transition to the QE2, the adult hospital. And that transition for a lot of people is an extraordinarily traumatic experience. Um, it, is, it is a period of time where you start to experience grief. Uh, and you don't even realize that this is what's happening. Because you are leaving behind this community that you once knew and that you once felt so comfortable with. And you're entering a brand new community. And not only that, you're also entering a space where you no longer have your advocates by your side. And for, for myself, my own personal experience, that was my mother. So now I'm an adult. My mom actually can't come with me to the QE2. I have to do this on my own. Also, the walls are beige, and at the IWK, the walls are yes, colorful. I mean, that actually, actually, for real, plays a role in it. I, I, for yeah, real. totally. And so you're left, you're left to your own devices. And as a as a kid who's 18, who never had to rely on his own self advocacy, always leaned on somebody else. That was a really fucked up, challenging experience. And there seemed to be a gap there in that transition. There seemed to be, there seemed to be a lot of work on the peds end, but then the adult side there almost like a um it was almost as though there just wasn't like enough interest or care to see that transition happen clearly mm -hmm. and at this conference someone said something really awesome where they said uh it was actually a patient from the IWK who made the transition they compared the transition to sending a package and they were like you know when you send a package you want to ensure that the person that's on the side at sending the package has all the relevant, relevant information that they need to ensure that the package gets to where it goes. And the person who's on the side ready to receive the package also has all that relevant information and they are ensuring that that package is received and received with care. Somewhere in that passing off of the package, there's like a bit of a lack of care. At least that's how it feels for a lot of patients. Um, so I know that this is a part of your research and interest. And I would love to hear what your thoughts are in terms of what you've kind of like come across, what you've unpacked, and just your overall opinion on like that transitionary period and, and its importance and, and its kind of need for work and dedication to that side of things. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, thank you for sharing your experience. And that sounds like such a lovely conference. I'll have to stop by next time they hold it if they do. <laughs> um, so yeah, I kind of, I, it seems to many people that this is kind of outside my wheelhouse and like this total, you know, shift away from, from what I already do and stigma, but it's really not. Um, so I, I kind of had this idea to study transitions. Um, I, 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 it was kind of boiling in the back of my head, um, from my first year of college. Um, I, have a little bit of a complicated health history, but but even outside of that, my my friends who maybe don't have that, we were all kind of at a loss. I came to um, my freshman year was like that first full year of like super COVID time, mm -hmm. and so um, we were all just really confused. Like, how do you make a doctor's appointment? How does the student health center work? Do I have to like book this online? I don't know what they what to do when they tell me I need X Y Z prescription. You know. Um, so it's, it's unfortunately really common. And, you know, I think, I think it's also very relevant to people who maybe don't go to college and don't leave home at 18. Yeah. Um, because even though you are still kind of around your, you know, historical support systems, whether that be parents or, or whoever it is, uh, you do have to change providers. And that in itself is, is tricky. Your mom can't make your appointments for you. You mm. have to figure that stuff out on your own. So, um, it just felt really relevant. And like, I felt like I had the knowledge base to kind of dive into that. Mm. Um, so I brought that idea to one of my mentors and um, she focuses, she's a child life specialist. I don't know if that exists in Canada, um, but it's essentially, it's like a type of social worker who um, only works in healthcare settings and their focus is child development and child adjustment. Cool. And so here, a lot of times they're like assigned to specialty clinics. So like a CF clinic would have one, type yeah. one diabetes clinic would have one. Um, and then they also kind of float around hospital spaces. So while you're hospitalized, sometimes they'll come in and check in. Um, and so she does a lot of work in that. We kind of put our, put our brains together and um, designed a study for adolescent and young adult patients at our hemophilia clinic at the children's hospital. 
Um, and it's actually a really cool methodology. I'll try not to geek out on it too much, but it's um, kind of this new wave of thinking um, in, in you know, psychosocial uh, support research where you get the first person perspective of the patient, right? Because first mm -hmm. off, major lack of research there. It's a lot of its numbers, like how many people are making appointments on time, you know? So instead we, we ask them directly, but we use something called photo voice. So we give them five prompts, um, all kind of related to their diagnosis and their, their level of psychosocial adjustment, comfort transitioning. And we say, okay, for each of these prompts, take a photo of something that you feel like answers the prompt and write a caption. And then we bring them in for an interview and, and kind of have them talk it out a little bit. So it's very cool. Um, and yeah, we're, we're in the thick of recruitment right now. Um, so I do have, you know, some sort of knowledge based in like the literature I've reviewed again, it is very few and far between. Um, but, but I'm really excited to see, uh, what they say and what they let us know. Um, that clinic specifically is really interested in this because they have a lot of patients who they're, they're, they're really good about transition in the sense that they follow everything that, you know, has been suggested. Um, so they kind of help mm. them, um, as they're older, like we'll do a trial period, right. Where, okay. Parents hands off, they have to schedule their next appointment. Right. Um, and they go through a transition checklist. Do you have a car or do you have a reliable way to get to appointments? Where are you moving? You know, um, and, and kind of answering those things, but people are still not, you know, attending adult clinic at the same frequency as they were Pete's clinic. Right. So um, they were interested in kind of filling in those gaps. Yeah. It, Again, is, it ties to like the adherence, right? Like, like that's another mm -hmm. part of like the social side that can have an effect on the adherence of the patient, which is, you know, it's like, if you don't feel like equipped, like it reminds me of how, you know, in, in schooling, there are, we were talking in this conversation recently, like there's, there's just this, there's this gap in that when we, we're, we're, we're like in high school and like a, a big portion, maybe at least of like the last like two year or two years of high school is to try and set you up for going to university. Yeah. yeah. But it's like not, nothing is setting you up to be the adult that's in university that now has all the responsibility of being yeah. an adult yeah. and like no one's telling you about how to do your taxes or what yeah. a mortgage is or like how to set up what insurance plans or whatever. Like the, none of like the actual really relevant logistical information yeah. how that to make something to, other than a bowl of cereal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious and how you, and how you end up making bad choices or no choices because right. you just weren't set up to make. Yeah. And, and the same in, in the health sphere, like yeah. if you don't feel like you're, if you don't feel up, like you were trained to be a self advocate, right? Yeah. And again, it's like that 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 empowerment piece, right? If a patient feels empowered, a patient's going to feel adequate for self advocacy, and if a patient feels adequate for self advocacy, we're going to see better health outcomes across the board. Um, but without that, then you'll, you're going to see patients kind of fall through the cracks. I'm I'm curious about the um, the photo prompting and yeah. the design of that. Um, one, I'm curious yeah. if you can give us a, an example of what that might look like. And, and two, I'm, I'm also curious if this is designed more for a younger generation in the sense that it almost reminds me of like, of like taking a photo and then captioning it for like Instagram or, or like making really? a TikTok video. It, it, it seems like a way that a younger person would understand and intuitively know how to sort of respond to that. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what it's based in. Um, kind of like you were talking about earlier um, at the conference. So uh, what does exist out there in, in terms of research, um, a lot of it has shown that digital diaries and social media um, are, are actually really helpful in, in teenagers kind of feeling empowered um, related to their diagnosis, because that's, that's what social media is, right? Like you post the, yeah. the best moments of your life, you show things that you're really proud of, you, you know, get closer with your friends through that. And so um, it's kind of like a really unique and interesting way that that people from my generation kind of feel vulnerable, but also feel really empowered by doing so. Um, and so that's kind of where I think that this methodology kind of came up was was drawing on what are young people doing and and what is important to them and how do they communicate with each other and then kind of, you know, drawing on that. Um, I, I could shoot you some examples later if you're interested. Um, like I said, sure. it is like it is pretty new. Um, so I know there was one project that was uh, a lot of times they're not really used in the research setting. Right. So it'll be something like, oh, we're going to do a photo voice project. So you're going to take a picture of like I think there's one that was um, 
that that got a lot of attraction that was like, oh, um, take a picture of how you're perceiving the COVID pandemic and how that impacts your life. And so kids are taking pictures of like these empty swing sets and like they're th- these really creative, awesome things and, and writing these thoughtful captions um, that they're mm-hmm. able to base in something um, instead of just asking someone straight up, you know, it's it's so much easier to have something to draw from and even cooler when the thing you're drawing from is something that you took in the first place. Um, and so, so yeah, it's, it's um, a lot of times they do those projects and then we'll like hang it up on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what my team and I are really interested in doing is, is taking that existing methodology that exists that has been, you know, shown to like elicit these really awesome and creative responses um, but then code it like you would any other qualitative study. So you just go line by line. This is a really simplified um, explanation, but you kind of go line by line. And then an experienced member of the research team who's kind of trained in like these kind of theories and topics will say, oh, look, seven out of 10 patients all identified this thing as, you know, something that's really important to them. And then we mm. can turn those into numbers and study them. That's really cool. I I would um you know I I I know I know another thing that we sort of talked about prior to recording was just like the the importance and like the power of narratives um and especially like especially thinking about this from like a the sort of child um uh like like child care and peds care the importance of narratives um it's something we've kind of touched on before, but, 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 uh, just again, to like tie this into my own personal experience, I never really thought about the power of like, of like seeing yourself represented in film. I've always heard people talk about that where it's like, Oh, I don't, I don't feel like I'm represented or like, there's an importance to being, you know, feeling represented in media. And I was always like, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't really like, I don't really get it. Probably cause I'm just a, a white male. That's like, you know, I've got lots of representation. But I never really thought about the lack of representation for like a CF patient until, until we went to five feet apart. That's right. Until we saw Justin right. Baldoni's five feet apart. And that movie, after, like it was a very visceral experience seeing that movie yeah. and going, oh, fuck. This is what everyone was talking about. And oh, my goodness. I, like. This is such a unique feeling to, to right. feel like I am seeing a representation of something that I, that's so close to me being played out here in front of this, you know, theater people, it's, it was, it was a, um, it was really powerful. So can you speak, you know, can you speak to your thoughts surrounding the importance of narrative? What does that mean? You know, what does that mean for patients? Um, and, 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 you know, let's say, let's say someone's out there listening to this and they, they, they feel like they haven't actually seen them or their illness represented. Are there ways that people can kind of look at doing that themselves? And what does that look like? Totally. Um, so this is kind of drawing back on on what I was saying earlier that, you know, maybe this work um, from the outside looking in is like, what does that have to do with like stigma and and, right. and social life? But um, if I asked you to describe the role of what is supposed to be like the life of a teenager, an adolescent, a young adult, it might be hard to like write it out uh, neatly, but you'd, you'd have a pretty good idea of what that would look like, right? The classic coming of age story. Um, and a lot of sick teenagers don't fit that idea. And a lot of them do, but they don't think they do because of the way we talk about illness. Um, and, you know, we kind of, I don't know if this is this uh, relates to your experience at all, but um, what I've noticed is we kind of place illness on this like unique pillar of suffering that like no one else could ever understand. It's like this, this experience that, you know, is, is so paramount in one's life and is, must be so awful and so bad. And, and, you know, a lot of times that's well-meaning, right? It's, it's trying to like romanticize this, this suffering. And I feel like a lot of media does that. Um, but romanticization is not the opposite of stigmatization. It's actually like a mechanism by which we continue to do that. Right. Um, and so for, for adolescents and young adults, we, we try to avoid interventions that make kids like quote, feel like anyone else. Um, so, so what we want to do is instill meaning and purpose in the life of the sick person rather than like striving towards living a non-sick person life. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of where narratives come in. Um, and so interestingly, um, I, I think that, um, one of the, like, this is again, newer, but one of the interventions that we see for a lot of kiddos who are like, 
um, maybe physically disabled or unable to leave their house for whatever reason, um, one of the things that kind of gives their life purpose and meaning is like video games and and online chat totally. spaces and things yeah. like that. So um, that's a way to kind of, you know, that's an intervention to kind of give people a meaning, purpose in life. But at the, you know, as interesting as that is, I'm I'm a little more interested in like crafting an illness narrative, which you mentioned. Sorry, I'm kind of talking in circles at this point. Um, but but that's kind of like essentially what it is, is taking the story of your health and tying it into the story of your life. Yeah. It's not like I am a totally normal, awesome, great person, which like, you know, whatever, everybody's great people, but it's not like having that side of you and then the patient side. It's like, how are these two things the same? How can yeah. you be a smart, intelligent, funny, social person while also being a sick person? Those two things are not, yeah. you know, exclusive. Um, and so kind of writing out the ways that or speaking i know we've talked about digital stuff so maybe like doing like podcasting or things mm -hmm. like that we have that at the children's hospital where people will come around to rooms and and say you know give us like a 30 minute spiel tell us about your life and and all the things you've done um and you know it's really helpful for for people to talk about you know this is the story of my health and all of the things i've been through in that regard and then i'm going to talk about it at the same time with like all of the things i've accomplished and mm. and how full of a life i'm living mm. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, you know, I've, I've, I've said this in a number of talks, but like we, we, I think, I think we've all heard people say something to the, the effect of like, Oh, well, I, I would never want my illness to define me. And, and like, I mean, I, I like, I see it the complete opposite way. I'm like, I, I, I want to yeah. let my illness define me 100%, but I want to, I want to do that on my own terms. Like, I, you know, I'll let it define me the way that I allow it to define me, you know? It's really, it's really refreshing to hear uh, like a younger perspective, um, in particular about things like video games. Yeah. Uh, I feel like, I feel like, not to, not to sort of take the power of the word stigma, but I feel like there's a lot of stigma around video games in terms of like if you look yeah, at totally. it, for a lot of adults, if they look at children playing video games, one of the first thoughts they might have is like, oh, what a waste of time! Like that kid's wasting Ooh. their life. Oh, the other uh, day I heard somebody say, you know. My son, he's a good kid. He doesn't play video games. He doesn't. Yes. And, and, yeah. I, and, yeah. I, and I heard her. I heard her say that. And I went, what? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the interesting thing is, like, as as um, gamers or fans of video games, um, the three of us, I I I really see the value in video games. I'm curious, like, what what sort of um, benefits in terms of narratives do you do you see specifically when it comes to um, someone who's maybe passionate about playing video games? Totally. So um, I would say I've I've kind of looked at this less through the lens of narratives and more through the lens of like developing community. Um, but but something that's interesting is, you know, a lot of kids we find go into this fantasy world, whatever that may be. I'm, I'm not a huge gamer. I'm like my knowledge ends at Nintendo. But, um, <laughs> you know, so so they go into these, you know, collective gaming experiences and it could be with their friends from school that hey I'm I physically cannot go to the football game that everyone's going to what's something that I can do to like stay connected and and feel involved and 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 be in on the jokes and you know be a part of this community that I have um and so that's you know kind of the main way that I've seen it operate um I think it's also helpful to give kids the chance to in some regard like be the hero of a story and and maybe they're not ready to to do that in their own life and it's a little trickier to like say that about yourself right because sometimes you feel like oh i'm like gassing myself up like i'm you know mm. but um it gives them the chance to win at something and to work towards something and to have a goal and accomplish it and it and it really helps instill confidence in a lot of people who maybe can't you know live out other goals things that have to do with like you know uh like physical accomplishment Mm -hmm. That's really cool. I, I find them, um, I know personally, like I don't play a lot of, um, um, uh, one player video games. I, I mostly play multiplayer ones and it, it was funny. I was playing an, uh, a game with my friend the other night and, um, I realized that I wasn't even paying attention to what was happening in the game. I was actually just talking to him mm -hmm. and we were talking about life and, and school and work and how things were were going and i realized um that i just kept dying and i wasn't helpful in the game at all but like we were just having this really great conversation and i think that 
um, a lot of adults who look at video games, they think of video games in the ways that they were in the early days. Like there was no online connectivity. There was no community in those games. It was a lot of like um, playing this game for hours on end where you might've been isolated. And even though you were accomplishing things like, you know, working towards a goal or doing problem solving and a lot of other things that I think are really great about video games. Um, I, I oftentimes think that they don't think about that community aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so many kids are going home from school and then continuing, you know, for better or worse, their relationships that they have with their friends at school because they exist online, whether that's mm-hmm. in games or, you know, in communication forms like chatting on Discord yeah. or things like that. I so. mean, think about like, think about how video games played such a such a vital role in keeping our own social sanity. And I'm talking about the three of us yeah. during COVID. Yeah. Right. Like I felt like even though I, I, we might not have seen each other's faces for like weeks or, or, you know, months on end, we were hanging out. We were, we were together every single day, you know, yeah. like, and, and that was by way of video games. Like it, it really, it, there really is like a, a, a very, very uh, valuable power to the, connectivity that can be involved there especially you know i mean when you're talking about people who might live with a disability where it's like they don't actually get to have much of a social life outside of their home you know they don't have the they 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 don't have the ability and, and you know when covid comes around you know when we when we get hit with a global pandemic that that that's exponentially more true than it already was so yeah i love that i love that you you bring that up and it does make me wonder. I, I wonder if uh, there's when when you think of like researchers who have been in this career for a long time that that you might work with, um, not to throw shade at anyone, but are there are there those sort of like dated perspectives um, from older researchers or do you find that they're mostly pretty open to exploring these new ways of thinking about these problems? Well, I'll say everyone I've interacted with personally is great. Um, I have nothing but great things to say. Um, I a lot She's of the winking. people. She's though, winking that, at us. <laughs> I'm not. Winking. I'm not. I swear. I swear. Um, I I definitely you know, but you see it in the work that's yeah. that's being produced. You see it in the way that we're thinking about this the same way over and over again. I mean, back to the transitions aspect, right? It's like these people are not you know doing this medication every day. So we're going to tell mom to observe and make sure that they do it. Oh no, that fail. It's like, we're, we're not going anywhere in some ways. And, and obviously there's a lot of promising work being done and, and, you know, it's, it's really important, but I think like we, it's a big gap and, and no Mm -hmm. one's really talking about it. And I think like, I mean, especially when we get to like media, because it's, there's this confusion about like, how, where do we go from here? How do we take something like media. So like, I'm really interested in illness media and and depictions of illness through that. I know you mentioned five feet apart. There's a, I know we're running short on time, but I'm, I'm, if you ever catch me again, I could talk for hours about a Netflix show called the midnight club. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I have so many thoughts, but, um, Michael Flanagan, you know, right. Uh, same guy that did uh, midnight mass and, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, uh, haunting of Hill house. It was like, is he, it, it was based off of a, uh, like a, um, a teen fiction, um, mm-hmm. series from back in, I don't know, like probably the late nineties or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah sorry, oh gosh, sorry, I cut you so off, cool. but I know exactly what you're talking about and I love my, okay. Play. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, just a quick aside there. I mean, it was canceled, which is like so frustrating because I mean, obviously it's a Netflix show, right? So there was some like cringy dialogue and you know, mm-hmm. some things that weren't quite fleshed out, but there's still like these moments of, of it, it's taking sick adolescents and putting them as stars of the story and it's giving them lives outside of that. So mm-hmm. no longer are they like these supporting characters that are driving character development and like their mm-hmm. healthy counterparts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I have a lot to say on it. Yeah. But and on top um, of that, it's it's horror. Uh, so yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's, you know, kind of that's fun. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that's like one of the first times I've ever seen, you know, a a good and popular rendering of like the sick person story outside of like the drama yeah. you know sphere. Or like rom-com mm-hmm. shit rom-com yeah, 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 you know yeah. the, the wife with cancer rom-com. and yeah, yeah, yeah you know, exactly. hey yeah. love rom-com yeah, but totally. but cancer fix they're mm-hmm. you know yeah they're it very is, formulaic it, it does make me think of like you know like wouldn't it be cool if there was a show that was had a character like in five feet apart but the story wasn't about them you know like right. the story wasn't about the fact that they're sick but that character still existed in that world yeah, yeah. Um, because i feel like 
oftentimes when um, illness is depicted, it's because it is like the star of the show. And it's like, look at the experience of this person yeah, because yeah. they are that way. Not that they're just this right. like I mean, person like, in this storyline that happens to also have this thing. And a lot like how, <clears throat> how, how um, like gay characters have evolved in, mm-hmm. in media over the past like five to 10 years where instead of it, instead of them being gay is the story. Right. There's just they're, a gay character, just a gay character because there are just gay people right. in the world and that's normal. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. yeah. yeah. Um, Emmy, uh, you're, you're, you're awesome. This is really, it's really oh, cool. Thanks. It's really cool to, again, I, you know, I said it earlier and I'll repeat it, uh, again, but it's just, it, it, it's really hopeful. It's really like a beautiful thing to be able to speak to someone so young, so bright, who's on the path to like looking at stuff that matters and, and looking at stuff that maybe isn't getting enough focus Yet there's something about your brain that has kind of like wired itself into seeing and recognizing that and and wanting to put effort into uh, into focusing on it. So thank you so much for a the work that you are doing and the work that you will continue to do, I'm sure. Um, but also thanks for taking time of your schedule to sit down with us, even, even though you've probably got a, an exam like five minutes after this so yeah, good luck with your bio exam <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah this is this has been a real treat and uh and we hope to we hope to keep keep in touch we would love to have you back on that some sure. point in the future awesome i'll have i'll have more papers and all sorts of things under my belt so i'm interested to see where it goes cool sweet well thanks Emmy. this thanks has been so real much. fun thank you so much that is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.